grace. Thank you that by grace you have forgiven our sins and with peace you quiet our consciences. May your people this day have more insight. May I, together with them, have more insight into the wonder of this grace. Grant us your spirit to these ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now you may be seated. By the way, somebody left my, my comfort up here. My comfort is still up here. So, inside joke. So we've started to make our way through Romans, this great letter of the Apostle Paul. I hope you'll read it. hope you'll read it again and again. Um, we're going to be in it for a while. I'd encourage you to read it um, as John Chrysostom, who was a third, fourth century minister of the gospel, uh, had it read for him twice a week. Um, it's 16 chapters, but I, I'd encourage you, you don't have to be that ambitious, but maybe read it once a week and read it in different translations so that you can get some of the subtle nuances and some of the, the significance of meaning that you find uh, in this letter. So read it and, and, and keep reading it uh, and, and enjoy it and, and mine it because it's, it's been such a powerful influence in the life of the church across the years. Augustine was converted through the book of Romans. Wesley was converted through the book of Romans. Martin Luther received, if, if he wasn't converted, he received deep, deep comfort from his study and preaching of the Ro- book of Romans. I mean, it's been used so powerfully by God through the history of the church. So I encourage you uh, to, to read it and reread it and, uh, and wrestle with it and live with it. And here's what we've seen so far. We've seen that Paul, who calls himself uh, first a servant, a slave of God and an apostle, of Jesus Christ, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. That's the first thing we talked about two weeks ago. There is one gospel. It is the gospel, and it is the great good news, and it is the great good news that comes from God himself. It comes from God himself, and it is about God himself. It is about what God has done. It's about what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. It's the good news. It's this great, great announcement uh, that comes from God and that is about God. And then we looked last week at, at these things that are very much in the fabric of who Paul is as a servant of, a God, of the gospel, as an apostle, as one who is sent. He, he's a slave. He has a master. You remember? He has a master. And anybody who is a Christian uh, is, is mastered. In fact, everybody is mastered by something. Everybody is the slave of something. Uh, and Paul is, is reminding us in this very first word, the very first word out of his mouth, he is being mastered by this gospel, by Jesus Christ. He has a master, and, and he has a mission, and we touched on that a little bit last week. We'll look at it in greater detail next week. His mission is the nations. His goal is the nations. His audience is the nations. He's one who is sent. He goes to the audience he's sent to go to, and that audience is the nations, all of the nations, to take the gospel to the nations. And he has a method. He is a herald. He is an apostle. That is, he is one who is sent. He is one who is entrusted with a message, and he goes to herald that message, to proclaim that message. And again, we'll be looking at that idea 
even more as we make our way through this gospel. He's been entrusted with something, and he goes to proclaim it. That's his method, to proclaim, to herald, to announce this gospel of God, the glad tidings of God. Now, here's the question this week. There's the gospel of God. It's the one gospel. It's the good news. It's about God, what God has done. It comes from God. There's this this apostle who has sent. He's, he's a herald of this. We too, as, as slaves of Jesus Christ, we're entrusted with the same message, the same gospel. Well, what is it? What's the gospel? What's the gospel? It comes from this word. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. It comes from this word, which means good announcement, euangelion, good pronouncement, glad tidings. What is it? What are the glad tidings? Well, a couple of weeks ago, as we got this thing started, I use this as an illustration. November 14th. My middle daughter is engaged to be married. November 14th. If you ask my middle daughter, what does November 14th mean? There are a lot of things that she could say. A lot of things that she would say. She might talk about her dress a little bit. She might talk about the reception. She might talk about the band. She might... She might talk about her bridesmaids. They found dresses yesterday. How delightful is, you know, she may talk about a lot of things. But if you ask her what is November 14th about, her answer is going to be Brant Sykes. It's about him. It's about him. That's what November 14th is about. It's about Brant. And you ask the question, what is the gospel about? There's so many things that we could say about the gospel that we should say about the gospel. The gospel is like a rainbow. It's like Joseph's coat of many colors. There are all of these hues, all of this diversity, and it all hangs together. And you can look at each color, and you can talk about each color. You can describe, or you can attempt to describe each color, and then you can try to talk about how they all hang together. But at the center of it all, it's him. It's about him. That's what Paul says in this. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And we get three things here. Among others, big surprise again, three things. I don't know why things tend to fall in threes. I don't know. Maybe it's something woven into the fabric of the universe. Maybe it's a reflection of the fact that God exists as a triune God and threes just show up all over the place. I don't know. No explanation. I'm sorry. didn't mean to offend your sensibilities with that. But here's three things. Three things about Jesus. Three simple yet unutterably wonderful and staggering truths about him. He was promised, he has come, and he now reigns in power as Lord. He was promised, he has come, and he is now the king of glory. He was promised first. Verse 2, Paul says, that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that is God, promised beforehand In the Holy Scriptures, he was promised. The Son was promised. Now, the temptation, I think for many of us, probably, the temptation, which um, I'm 
you know, trying to, to get us to overcome the temptation when we hear the word prophet is to think in terms of those who are named prophets, to think perhaps of the writing prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Micah and Malachi and Amos and Hosea and all of the rest. Or we may think of the non-writing prophets. We may think of Elijah and Elisha. But when you hear that phrase, when you hear that phrase Paul uses, promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, you've got to extend your range out beyond the writing, the so-called writing prophets, and beyond even those non-writing prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And you've got to take in the entire Old Testament. You've got to include the entire Old Testament. Martin Luther said, the whole Old Testament is prophetic. All of it. From the first verse of Genesis 3 through the last verse of Malachi, it's all prophetic. That's the thing that I'm encouraging us to try to see and have tried to encourage us to see over the last couple of years. We've made this point multiple times, but it has to be made again and again and again And the point that's being made here is that there is a real unity to the Bible. You remember what Jesus did with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, verse 27, after the resurrection, as they're walking along the road, Luke tells us that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including Moses among the prophets. Moses is one of the prophets. Moses is the one who in Deuteronomy said, God having inspired him to say it, Moses said to Israel, after me, one will come like me, a prophet like me. Moses is a prophet. It begins with Moses. It continues all the way down to the days of Malachi, and it actually culminates with John, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Everything inclusive, Moses and all the prophets, Jesus then interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. See, Jesus broadens our thinking about who the prophets are, Moses and all the prophets. And then later, in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus refers to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the phrase that was used. It was current in the day to describe the whole of the Old Testament, and Jesus uses it. And so from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the whole of the Old Testament, He directs their attention to himself. So you ask, what is the Old Testament about? What are those 39 books about? You know the squirrel story, right? If you don't know the squirrel story, ask somebody here who knows the squirrel story. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. From start to finish, from beginning to end, the Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament is about the one who is promised. The New Testament is about the one who fulfills the promise, the one who comes in fulfillment of the promise. And we have to be careful, I think. We use language. You use language. I use language. We have to use language. It's how we communicate. We can't talk to each other, really, if we don't have some form of language. It can be body language. It can be sign language. It can be words on a page. We've got to have language to communicate. We use it, but we have to be careful that we're not influenced and shaped by it. And here's, here's what I mean. We, we refer to the Old Testament which is a kind of a dangerous thing. 
we refer to the Old Testament, and in a culture which prizes the new, and the newer the better, there's a tendency to be dismissive of the old. Say, oh, that's the Old Testament. Gordon MacDonald used to refer to the Old Testament as the Older Testament, and the New Testament as the Newer Testament. I think that's better. It's just older, but it's not old to be dispensed with, discarded. Some of you will get this joke. We don't want to be dispensationalists. We don't want to be dispensing with things. Anywhere from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. And the whole of the Old Testament tells us about the one who has come. I've talked a lot in the last couple of years about Genesis 3.15, the first promise, the seminal promise in the Old Testament, the promise of a warrior who will come. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That's the first promise of the gospel, that in some sort of conflict, evil is going to be overcome. There is one who will appear, who will destroy the evil one, who will destroy all the works of the devil. The reason I had us read Psalm 72 in this service this morning is because you and I, along with the saints across all of history, believe in a king who is unlike any other king. A warrior king who has come, who does righteousness, who does justice, whose belt, according to Isaiah 11, is a belt of righteousness, who, according to Psalm 89, 14, has a throne that is established upon righteousness and justice. And all of that begins to be prophesied, promised in Genesis 3.15. Somebody's going to come, a warrior king, who will overturn evil and who will rule in righteousness and justice. That's where it starts. And that promise begins to be unfolded. But you don't have to wait for Elisha and Elijah and Isaiah and all of the rest of the prophets. You don't have to wait for the next little bit of unfolding of that promise. In fact, you don't even have to get out of Genesis chapter 3 to see that promise unfolded just a bit more. Because in Genesis 3 verse 20, The promise is expanded a bit. There's this promise of one who is going to come. And you can go look at this. You can look at it now or you can look at it this afternoon. Just make note of Genesis 3.20. That immediately after the curses are spoken, the man and the woman are created perfect, holy, blameless. They're placed in an environment that is harmonious and beautiful and lovely where there's no death, there's no sadness. There is life that pulsates through everything. There are no wildernesses, no deserts, no diseases. And they commit the unspeakable act of rebellion against God. And as a result of that rebellion, they fall from that blessedness. They fall into a condition of death. And immediately after God speaks all of the curses, The man and the woman in the midst of the garden, guilty before God, worthy of death. They will someday die physically. They are feeling the reality of death spiritually. They are feeling the reality of death in their personal relationships. In the midst of all of that, immediately after his rebellion and response to the promise of God, in response to what God says, Adam calls his wife Eve. 
epic deal. Well, up to that point, Eve has only been called woman. But at that moment, Adam addresses his wife as Eve in an environment of death where everything is beginning to die. They themselves will die. He calls his wife Eve, which means, translated perhaps in your Bible, mother of all living. It comes from a Hebrew word that means living. What it literally means is life giver. Life giver. So the one who is promised, who's going to come, who's going to do all of this stuff that's promised in Genesis 3.15 is not only going to destroy the evil one and overcome evil, he himself is going to be life-giving. The one who comes will not die. The one who comes will not be swallowed up in death. But he, the one who will come, will swallow up death himself. Eve carries around in her body the promise of one who will come who will be unlike any other one who would come. He will not die, but he will swallow up death forever. That's the one who is promised. Look, folks, I wish I could camp on this for an hour. (laughs) You're surrounded by death. You're immersed in it. You don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about death. It's ugly. It's unseemly. It's not polite. But it is a reality, friends. And the original good news, the oldest good news, the ancient good news is the promise of God who will send one who will live and who will consume the thing that you live in fear of every single day, death. He will live eternally. He will be a life giver. He will swallow up death for all of those who knowing they are dead turn to him for life. And that promise again continues to be expanded across the whole of the Old Testament. The warrior who comes as a life giver. He is promised. You can read about it. You can see it expanded across the whole of the Old Testament. And then here's the second thing. He did come. He was promised, and he did come. Verse 3. This gospel, this gospel of God concerns his son, Jesus Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh, a descendant of David. He came. He did come. This one who was promised, Paul is saying, has come. And he has come, he has come as a descendant of of David. Now here's a this is a phenomenal thing. The words that the apostle Paul uses here and the connection particularly that he establishes between Jesus and David. Paul is writing to a mixed congregation, a congregation made up of Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews this would have certainly been arresting. Uh, it would have been very significant for them to have heard Paul connect Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, as a descendant of David. But it had incredible relevance for the Gentiles as well. Because what is it that that is the principal feature, the principal characteristic of the life of David? I mean, you think about a lot of things with respect to the life of David. You can think about David the shepherd, Jesus is the greater David, he's the greater shepherd. You can think about David the warrior. Uh, David the one who lopped off the head of Goliath. 
By the way, can we do a little Old Testament gospel work here? When you teach, if you ever teach, I learned this, learned this from several people. If you ever teach the story of David and Goliath, don't come to the end of it and say, David was faithful to God. You go be faithful to God as well. (laughs) Don't take the story of David and Goliath and turn it into a moral tale. Because you see, David lopping off the head of Goliath is a bit of a picture of what was promised in Genesis 3. One is going to come who will crush the head of the enemy of God, the opponent of God. Don't look to David when you look to the story of David and Goliath. Look to the greater David, the greater warrior, Jesus, who by his life, in weakness, not even having stones in his pocket but through death lops off the head of the greater evil one and enemy of God. Look to Jesus, point people to Jesus in all of these things. Whether you think of David as a shepherd, Jesus is the greater shepherd. David is a warrior, Jesus is the greater warrior. David is the psalmist, Jesus is the greater psalmist, the sweet psalm singer in Israel. David who was rejected. Rejected by Absalom during the rebellion. Jesus was rejected, the greater David, rejected by his own, but in whose rejection salvation is secured. See how you can think about David? But what's the preeminent thing? What's the the characteristic of the life of David that stands out more than anything else? He was a king. And that was the promise that was made to David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. It's not Solomon. Solomon's like every other son of Eve. He's not the life giver. He's not the one who possesses life within himself. Solomon died. No, no, no. There is another descendant of David who will come and God will establish his kingdom. And that one, that greater David, greater than Solomon, will build a house for the name of God and God will establish his kingdom forever. That's what we think of when we think of David. And that's what Jesus is when he comes. He comes as a warrior. He comes as a life giver. He comes as a king a ruling king, a king who is righteous, who will reign in righteousness and justice. I mentioned Isaiah 11. I mentioned Psalm 89. Go read them this week. Now, the force and the power of all of this may escape us and probably does escape us, but it wouldn't have escaped the readers of this letter. Why? Because whether Jew or Gentile, living in Rome, you were living under the authority of a king, a king who possessed absolute power, civil power, political power, power to make law, power to enforce law. And so for Paul to be using this language would have immediately captured the attention of all who read this letter, whether Jew or Gentile. They lived under the authority of an emperor. And this language, again, in these seven verses is so arresting because 
the emperor was not only one invested with all of this political power and all of this authority, he was also, do you know, do you know the cult of the emperor? Do you know that he was, he was worshipped as a god? The emperor was worshipped. And here Jesus, Paul is connecting Jesus to David the king and pointing to Jesus as the greater king and calling this the gospel. Now here's the other thing. Again, so arresting. Not so arresting for us because we're familiar with these words. We, we hear gospel all the time. Evangelist, evangelical, evangelism. They all come from this word, euangelion. But what you don't know, may not know, is that this word euangelion was connected to the cult of the emperor. So that whenever an announcement was made, an announcement regarding an heir to the throne, an announcement regarding the accession of that heir to maturity, to manhood, the the accession of that heir to the throne, the word gospel was used. And heralds would go out into the whole of the Roman Empire and they would say, come hear the gospel. Come hear the good news. Come hear the glad tidings. The emperor who is worshipped as a god has had a son. Is this sounding vaguely familiar? And so the whole empire would celebrate. The emperor who had the son, the son has now become an adult, become a man. The emperor who had a son who has become a man is now enthroned and has taken his place as king. All of those things were announced with this word, gospel. In fact, there's an inscription, an inscription found that's dated about 9 B.C. And the inscription reads like this. This is an inscription that was written commemorating the birth of a son of one of the Caesars. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on his account. That was said about the son of a king. Now look, look at what Paul is doing here. He's taking all of this language that would have been so familiar to Jew and Gentile and he's saying, no, there's some better good news. There's some greater good news. And that really leads to the third point because this is the third word that Paul uses. He uses son over and over again. He uses euangelion over and over again and he uses the word Lord. The one who was promised has come. He has come as a king and he is now Lord. Look at verse 4. He was promised. He came as a descendant of David. In verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power. The ESV has the translation right. It's like a hyphenated qualifier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Son of God in power. It's a phrase that qualifies who he is. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, cloaked in power, robed in power, possessing all power. He was was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our kurios. Our Lord. Who was Lord at this time? Caesar was Lord. 
Kaiser Kurios. Caesar is Lord. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. He is not the Lord. There is another Lord, the one who is promised, the one who has come in fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament as the heir of David's throne. He has come, and now his resurrection is a validation of who he is as Lord and King over all. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one, Philippians chapter 1 and 2 Jesus is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is the reigning king. Jesus is the one who after his humiliation, his life of obedience, his death, and his resurrection as the defining and confirming and vindicating aspect of his life and ministry is exalted to the right hand of the Father and is seated upon the throne as Lord over everything. The one who comes in fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Who's the gospel about? It's about Jesus. Jesus the Lord. We're going to unpack this more and more in the weeks to come. The one who was promised. The one who came And now the one who rules and reigns in glory, clothed in power over all things. Some of you remember the Crocodile Dundee films. Remember Crocodile Dundee? Maybe you remember the second one when Crocodile Dundee comes to New York. You know, he's kind of chasing down his girlfriend and he comes to New York and and he and his girlfriend are walking through the streets of New York and they're accosted by some young toughs, and one of the young toughs whips out a switchblade and flips the button on the switchblade, and a little blade about four inches long comes out, and he says, I've got my knife. And Crocodile Dundee pulls from behind his back. Yeah, you're laughing, you remember. Pulls out a knife that has a blade about 18 inches long, and he says, that's not a knife. This is a knife. (laughs) And that's what Paul was doing with the Romans. That's not the gospel. This is the gospel. The one who was promised, the one who has come, and the one who now rules and reigns as king of glory, Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've come. Thank you that you've lived. Thank you that you've died. Thank you that you've been raised in glory. Thank you that right now there is no power that can brook your power, no glory that can brook your glory. You alone are supremely powerful and supremely glorious. And we praise and thank you that we live under the rule and reign of a good and gracious and glorious King. Would you help us to see this more and more, particularly in these days that that do trouble so many in so many ways and for so many reasons. Help us to see that you are the King of glory and that we are safe and secure. And Lord, as we prepare to come to this table, fix our 
hearts, fix our gaze upon your perfect work, life, death, resurrection, ascension, rule, high priestly intercession for us, all of it. Help us to see all of it as we come to your table, we pray in your name. Amen.